Hi, Sam. How are you? Doing well. Awesome. So today, I'm super well. Thank you. Uh, I'm just going to introduce you real quick. uh, For anyone who doesn't know, Sam Hammond, the Director of Social Policy at the Niskanen Center, prolific tweeter, and uh, uh, my good friend and ex-boyfriend. Thank you so much for uh, your time today, Sam. Anything I missed? No, I think you covered it. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah, so um, I wanted to speak with you today um, about, you know, any topics you want to discuss, but the thing that I've been focusing on most recently is the plight of U.S. born, sorry, U.S. native born men, and um, particularly things that we see like polarization, atomization, um, kind of a move toward reactionary politics, um, low and declining declining labor force participation rates, the rise of men who are not in education, employment, or training, things like that, and some possible policy solutions to some of these problems. Um, And then any kind of uh, cultural analysis that you think is important to bring up as well. Um, I know that your work focuses a lot on uh, welfare and social assistance programs. There's a big theme in a lot of the writing around meet men that uh, social assistance is actually part of the problem um, and contributing to the situation. Um, Do you think there's any merit to that? Um, Not in the case of single childless men. In fact, like the U.S. social safety net is weakest for childless single men, um, almost non-existent. Uh, Like TANF, which is the main welfare program, doesn't even recognize uh, single childless men for eligibility. Um, There are other sorts of programs, however. I mean, one of the intersecting trends that you have to uh, juxtapose with declining labor force participation and stuff like that is the rise of um, people living with their parents and the kind of delayed or arrested development, the delayed uh, jumpstart into a career. And it's hard to... um, pin down exactly what's causing this. I think there are bigger macro trends, you know, the boomers holding on to their housing wealth make it, makes it harder to start a family. Um, rising education and credentialing standards delays when you get to start your career. Um, the de- decline, relative decline in uh, working when you're in high school and uh, doing kind of crappy entry-level jobs and working your way up. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think there's any one, one causal explanation. Obviously, the, the change in work towards the knowledge economy is one of the bigger ones when it comes to um, uh, sex imbalance and stuff like that. It, the women are graduating with bachelor's degrees at much higher rates than, than men at, at this point. And, um, and what that causes is all the women in your hometown move to go to college and suddenly your hometown has a sex imbalance and the college that they're going to has a sex imbalance in the opposite direction. And so there's also this sort of uh, musical chair problem where, where, uh, the, where the, there's mismatch in the marketplace for, uh, for mates. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And I hadn't really thought about that. Um, I'm wondering whether these women tend to move back to their hometowns mm-hmm. or I guess, because I definitely see in cities like San Francisco, sorry, not San Francisco, it's the exception, New York and DC, you have more college educated women than college educated men. 
in those cities. Um, I'm wondering about other major economic hubs, um, you know, Chicago, let's say, whether the gender imbalance is, is similar. Um, it certainly seems like to an extent, uh, college educated men kind of have their pick of women um, because most meetings are assortative. Uh, most women who uh, have a degree want a man with a degree. Most heterosexual couples want the man to have slightly more or similar levels of education and income. Um, six so foot four. <laughs> sorry, oh yeah, well, you know, <laughs> there's preferences. Um, yeah, so it makes sense that, I mean, in Alienated America, Tim Carney talks about the kind of, you know, brain drain and, and not just brain, but like uh, the people who would make up the leaders of civil society leaving their hometowns and the people being left, uh, you know, not really having those leaders. And so the civil society kind of crumbles. And But I hadn't really thought about the gendered aspect of that, where there would be, you know, more men marriageable or you know, marriage age men than women in those places. Um, that's, a, that's an interesting. Yeah, no, H Helen Andrews has made that argument too in the context of um, female labor force participation, right? That, that before there was a big increase in uh, women moving into labor markets. It wasn't as if they were just sitting around doing nothing all day. They were, they were organizing community. And, right. um, uh, and so it's only natural to expect some of these um, civil society or institutions to crumble, obviously secular decline in unionization and stuff like that matters as well. The decline in membership-based parties where, you know, being a Democrat or being a Republican meant showing up to the convention and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, I think the bigger drivers are probably labor market and, uh, and these mismatch dynamics. And there's not really an easy solution, right? Because knowledge work um, and managerial work just the other other big source of uh, employment growth, um, things like nursing. Uh, these are more gendered for gendered professions, um, for better or worse, and um, and the kinds of traits that employers select for, say, in a management role, are the more conscientious uh, types. And and men obviously can be conscientious, but we can also <laughs> also be very non conscientious. Uh, especially if you're if among the, the cohort that's struggling the most. Yeah, and that's another interesting aspect of it is that the men with lower levels of income and in, in education tend to be more, oh, what's the word for it? Um, wedded to gender, gendered uh, expectations, wedded to a gender binary, wedded to uh, a more you know traditional idea of, of masculinity and femininity which makes it both more difficult for them to take on the wife role in a marriage and makes it more difficult them, for them to take on these uh, roles that are, are coded female right now. And I, you know, I'm with you. I, I really think that the central problem of, of marriage right now, um, and you know, we need to recognize the fact that like not being married impacts men much more severely negatively than not being married impacts women. Uh, men are less healthy, less happy, and more lonely when they're single versus women, um, which I think then snowballs into these issues of atomization and radicalization and grievance politics. Um, 
but yeah, as long as the demand for feminine coded labor or labor that's, you know, genderless, but um, men and women are equally, you know, uh, suited to by default, as women get more education, the labor market demands more education. Um, and I think, you know, I had Shoshana on um, from our street and, you know, we talked about some of the barriers to getting men in the labor force, the growing uh, licensure requirements and hoops you have to go through, like, obviously that's a problem, but at the end of the day, uh, if it's becoming not useful to be masculine in our economy and in our marriages, um, I just don't see a way around a rethinking of masculinity to give these men something to do. Right, but I guess that the crux there is then how much do you attribute to innate factors versus culturally encoded factors? And, you know, I tend to think that um, that this is that nature and nurture is a false dichotomy, but but that you but the ways in which nature manifests in culture, you know, the, that's the part that's variable and varies across the world and based on your level development and stuff, stuff like that. But um, but there are genuine differences between men and women, you know, sexual dimorphism is one of the most uh, uh, tested propositions there are in psychology and that's not to say that there are exceptions that there are non-binary people that there aren't um, uh, other kinds of edge cases but for the the 90 percent plus of um, Americans who are cisgendered and so on like there are there are very deep-seated uh, uh, gender differences and, and those those will cash out in the form of different occupational preferences, um, different uh, expectations that are mostly implicit. And um, right, and so you know, it's not it's not that you can make a sweeping generalization and say that all men want to, uh, or that um, all men want to be the breadwinner or something like that. I don't think that's the case at all. But I do think that there is so a degree of self worth and. Um, uh, esteem that comes that men get when they feel like they have status and the status is in terms of resources uh, like income and, and a good job or it could be because they're at the top of the of the pecking order and the and their city gang or something like that there's all kinds of ways that you can get status um, to be the best whatever Valorant player <laughs> um, and so, you know, maybe one solution to this is, is, to, is not to fight against the male nature of wanting to acquire resources and status, but to create new ways of acquiring resources, resources and status that, that are less zero sum. Yeah, I mean, I definitely want to dig into that further, like how, yeah, what, what are the um, useful ways to help men acquire resources and status that are, you know, positive sum and in keeping with, and I, I you know, obviously I'm not going to deny that um, some gender differences are, you know, innate or biological. I do question, it does feel to me that the, that gender essentialism is um, overestimated a lot of times. I mean, we definitely see throughout, you know, time and space that um, what is considered masculine does change based on mm -hmm. context and resources and 
um, uh, <laughs> you know, incentives. Um, and so I, I just, like right now we see, for example, and I don't know how it is in the rest of the world, but at least in American society, that men are tend to be uh, less conscientious, um, less agreeable than women on average. Um, but we also see that men are, uh, little boys are socialized to be less conscientious and agreeable than little girls are. Little girls are uh, heavily um, punished for not being conscientious and for not being agreeable um, in a way that's not true of boys. And so I'm wondering, you know, how difficult is it going to be in your opinion to shift our conceptions of masculinity? I guess, what barrier does nature, you know, just to use shorthand or innate gender differences, like how much of a barrier is that going to be, do you think, to a reconceptualization of masculinity that would enable men to find status um, and meaning and purpose in things that are currently coded feminine, like being the leader of the PTA or being the <laughs> primary um, caregiver or um, you know, doing feminine coded labor? Um, I mean, obviously status is always relative, right? So it's, it's I think the way you, create useful status hierarchies for men to, to compete on or to basically fragment the comp the forms of competition. And, and in some ways that's already happening, right? If you're, I, I mentioned like Valorant or like video games, <laughs> that's one, one area. And maybe that's one reason why men spend, are spending more time playing video games is because they're trying to be, they're trying to climb to the top of, the, of that particular pyramid. But they're, it, I, I think, I, I think, you know, being the head of the PTA is a form of status, being, um, just one nurse among many or something like that is, is not as appealing to, to most men. So I, 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 I'm really reluctant to think of human nature as a barrier to anything. I think it's, you know, we, we, um, we shape a hammer to fit our hand rather than, uh, some idealized appendage <laughs> and, and our, and just social technologies are, are tools just the same. We should try to mold them to our natures rather than the reverse, um, and that's and you know so there's there's certain empirical questions you have to settle in terms of what is malleable, what's not. Um, but um, in the case of of gender differences, it is this hard thing to disentangle because you have socialization, but but you also have genetics, and they are co-determinists and they happen at the same time. And how do you disentangle causality? And that's where things like twin studies and um, cross-national studies and and things come in handy because it really does turn out that you know certainly there's ways that socialization adds the content right um, uh, of what is coded as masculine in a particular day and age um, and and some things are obviously more arbitrary than others just like evolution doesn't care too much about hair color. Um, but uh, but to to think that they're totally malleable can lead to to bad bad places and um, can really cloud your policy response. Um, yeah, that's a that's a I would say that. I mean, I mean, I mean to, a good example would be like you know for generations, 
most people are right-handed, right? And for generations, there are people who are left-handed who are forced to write with the right hand. And that was cruel and unusual. And it's good that we don't do that anymore. But you also shouldn't redesign society so that uh, there are 50% left-handed scissors and 50% right-handed scissors. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I think a system that works against biology is uh, going to be not ideal, certainly. It's just a question of what actually is biological and what is cultural and what are these cultural... Um, I don't know, it just feels like we're socializing boys for a world that doesn't exist anymore. Um, we're socializing boys to be rowdy and rambunctious and competitive and loud and um, physical and uh, not conscientious. And to see, you know, go ahead. Well, you know, big five personality traits are probably some of the most you know, all personality research is a little bit suspect, but like big five is, are the, the traits that are most likely to be stable over your lifetime. Um, they are very heritable. Um, so, I mean, you can have a, uh, you know, a girl who grows up with a bunch of older brothers will, will be a little more rough and tumble, right? And so there are, there are ways socialization changes us on the margin. Um, and again, can fill in certain content where you learn your, you become Islamic if you grow up in Egypt, but you become Christian if you grow up in, in the South, in the US. So it's like, but at the end of the day, there's a deeper religious communal group impulse that those cultural markers are just filling a, a kind of cont a, a form. Um, and it works, I think it works the same with, with a lot of these gender relation questions and the, the, the you know, we shouldn't assume that we just need to make men more adaptable to the current reality. The current reality could change. Obviously, technology is going to continue, and there could be all kinds of surprises in the future um, in terms of like how these opportunity costs and stuff balance out and what kind of, what kind of behaviors get incentivized. But then there's also just been like what you know Tyler Cowen and others have called the feminization of society and culture. That that's a trend that could reverse. It's a trend that could face some kind of backlash. And it's a trend that you could potentially use policy to, to balance it as well. Yeah, I'd love for you to, um, Indian Bronson mentioned the feminization, Tyler Cowan's stuff before. I'd love to dig into that a little further. I mean, I think to an extent, there's definitely a feminization of education that's been really not helpful to anyone. Um, I think education is definitely an area where we're producing, you know, boys and girls, but girls are just better able to overcome it. You know, we're, we're training people for a reality that doesn't exist anymore. Um, and that's a huge missed opportunity. But um, I'm curious about like, how, it seems to me, for example, like, I don't know, making it about feminization or masculinization kind of misses the point that like K through 12 is failing everyone. Like you're just graduating without any skills um, in an economy that needs skills more than anything else. Um, but I'm, I'm curious about what I'm missing about like the feminization of society and like why it matters. I'd, I'd love it if you could just kind of like briefly summarize. Um, maybe it'd be useful to just give an example. Um, 
So, you know, you mentioned education and academia is, is, is uh, at the center for fem feminization. I, it's definitely part of this broader trend in, in, um, in terms of managerialism and, and more administrative roles and things like that, that um, are often for better or worse, uh, populated with, with, uh, with women, um, HR departments, stuff like that, you know, that's like the stereotype. Uh, or in the case of, it, of of higher ed, the kind of student services and, so, and stuff like that. Um, so if you look at like econ seminars, economics was historically notorious for having very disagreeable cultures around their seminars where you'd be giving a presentation and people would be raising their hand to object to something that's on the first slide. It's like, well, geez, give me a chance to get through it. But that was like part of the ethic of, um, of scrutiny that was applied and um, you know, there's definitely been a trend, at least anecdotally, where that's become more out of fashion. And you have also have folks who, in whether it's econ or physics or other programs that are like, we need to make this more accommodating for, for women in STEM or something like that. And so we need to be more gentle. Um, and in some ways it's, it's almost like patronizing to, to women that they can't you know, take some criticism. Um, but more often than not, I, I see that the demand for that coming from women themselves, sometimes vicariously on behalf of, of someone else. Um, uh, and that can, you know, that, that has pluses and minuses. There's, there's ways in which feminization has been obviously an unalloyed good, like the broader decline in violence. <laughs> you know, there's, there's all kinds of ways for, uh, where it's a positive. Um, the question is like, on the margin and in particular contexts. And if we're able to have open and honest discussions about uh, the costs and benefits of both, of both masculinity and femininity. Yeah, <clears throat> and, and it kind of sounds like to some extent, it sounds like it's less like a concerted effort to feminize and more just a combination of women being valuable, um, more valuable than we've ever been in the market economy, uh, women coming into fields at greater numbers than ever before, and women taking their, our, you know, preferences and norms and, uh, you know, getting them to be more normal. Um, that makes sense. And so, if we expect the demand for uh, femininity, let's just say, to, ex to increase and the demand for masculinity is currently understood to uh, stay stable or decrease, you know, what's, what's then to be done with, with these men? Um, how do we get them plugged into something useful? Yeah, that's the first thing to say is like, I don't think, I'm not confident enough to say that we can just extrapolate linearly from what's what's happened over the last 40 years or so. I would say as a as a diagnosis of the last 40 years, it's true that femininity has increased and masculinity has the the rewards of masculinity have decreased. Um, sometimes quite literally, right? Like so, you know, stagnant wages among men with high school degrees is is, is is at least in part the reduction of a, of a rent that men used to receive when women, women were kept to the labor market. Um, so there has been a, a, a real redistribution 
implicit there. But looking forward, like in the same way that, um, you know, since the 70s, manufacturing employment peaked and declined, uh, had, we, don't, we can't be sure that over the next 40 years, um, the kinds of roles that, uh, the kinds of uh, dynamics that have promoted recent feminization um, might not reverse. So like a good example, we just talked about managerial jobs and, and administrative jobs and bureaucracies and stuff like that. Or, or even healthcare, um, like those are all areas where AI is really well suited to automate um, a lot, a, a lot of, a lot of work. Um, so it, it becomes it becomes much less clear about how we how to predict going forward. Um, you know, but you know, the the policy solutions are, are kind of at least in the near term are, are kind of obvious. It's it should be disinvesting on the margin from college for all models of education. Um, college what? College for all models mm -hmm. of uh, broadening vocational apprenticeship type pathways. Yeah. Um, even be doing tracking in high school would, would be useful. You know, a lot of male dysfunction sort of peaks and declines after you're 25 years old. Um, more concentrated attention on, on how to deal with that population. Um, and then geographically, like a lot of these mismatches might solve themselves if the education and labor market dynamics change. But even if they don't, these are transitory dynamics because um, this, the town that lost all its marriageable women to college is not reproducing itself. So in <laughs> generations from now, um, we're all going to be in cities anyway. Yeah, <clears throat> we're going to be in cities, but uh, if, yeah, I mean, it's, it's difficult for me to imagine a scenario absent like more war um, where the traits we code as masculine currently are going to grow in value, at least some of them. Like it's hard for me to imagine an economy in the future where like physical strength is a major plus, um, again, because of automation. Um, and so, I'm, yeah, I'm just curious about like, what are some of your potential scenarios where demand for masculine labor increases relative to demand for feminine labor? Well, if the demand for feminine labor decreases and, and nothing else changes, then, it, then that's a relative increase. But um, it's really, yeah, it's really hard to predict. I, you know, there are, have been these two concurrent trends, one where men are getting more into weightlifting and stuff like that. Uh, and then one where men are getting more into like skincare. <laughs> and sometimes they're the same men. <laughs> um, so it's not, it, there may be just purely cosmetic approaches to, uh, to masculinity. The point about war is interesting. It's definitely true that there are no um, gender egalitarians and foxholes, right? Like we go to we go to war and and we want to win the war. And we when you are when things are existential, you sweep away a lot of the ideology and just try to um, recognize that like a man in combat can carry back their fallen comrade because they're 
have more muscle density and stuff like that. So it's also true uh, that a woman can operate a drone as well as a man. And that's the direction war is going in. So even in that scenario, it's just like, just not clear to me that men, the masculinity as currently conceived is ever going to be the advantage it it was. No, I, I, I agree with that, you know, especially like in the metaverse or whatever we're going towards. So there may not be a, a, a clear answer. It may just be um, that people have to voluntarily opt into communities that are that valorize um, more more forms of manual and martial virtue. Um, but it's one of those things where, like, I'm, you know, it's clear that like one of the forces, at least chemically and hormonally, that leads to declining testosterone levels and stuff like that is just how sedentary we are. And, um, you know, it was hard to find like fat people in the, in the 1940s, like, like someone who was like mildly obese was like the circus fat man. <laughs> That's because people were active and just moving around um, and didn't have uh, tons of calories. So, um, you know, one of the ways that artificial intelligence may play a role here is in uh, helping people with self-control. Um, you know, to the extent that we all will have like super intelligent personal assistants, um, the kinds of behaviors that lead to sedentary, short-termist kind of lifestyles um, that aren't fulfilling, that don't, don't create meaning. You know, you can break yourself out of that, but it, it's often easier if you have a community and in lieu of a community, like the reason the community is useful is because you have peers who are providing motivation and pressure and setting examples. Um, I don't think we'll ever be like totally atomized in that, at, at, that, at that level, but for even for folks who are like having, um, having a AI that can, you know, tell you to get out of your, get off the couch or, you know, to pep, pump you up or, <laughs> or whatever, there could all be all, be all kinds of ways where um, automation actually leads to a, a kind of a return to more organic modes of life because, because we choose to do them, not because we're forced to do them. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's an interesting point. I hadn't really thought about that. I mean, I'm, I'm very pro-technology, pro-innovation. It just seems to me that, especially young childless men in America are suffering from like a crisis of meaning and purpose. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't see, I, I could see an AI as like a first step toward getting to a place of meaning and purpose potentially, but it just seems like the barriers to meaning and purpose and community and connection are just, you know, mm-hmm. no, the, the for stack all is, intents the, and purposes. The deck is definitely stacked towards the Brave New World scenario where we use uh, intelligence just like you know, have sex bots and <laughs> and have have like chat bots that like the movie Her, where we fall in love with our our personal assistant. And um, you know, that's not a very pretty outcome. Yeah, so, it's very depressing. Right, but you know, that's that's why I think there's been also this sort of shift in the rationalist world towards you know rediscovering tr- tradition and stuff like that, where. And I don't think it's like been a sacrifice of the rationality so much as 
as rediscovering the implicit rationality in, in, in certain um, older school norms. And, um, you know, you know, monogamy is one of those, right? Like we, we talk about, you know, when Robin Hansen got excoriated for talking about sex redistribution, I think it's because people had in mind that he was going to, you know, have para, you know, paramilitary militias rounding up women and redistributing them <laughs> across the hinterland or something like that, which is like, which is, uh, I can understand the confusion because it's a very poignant way of d describing the, the, the concept, but like, um, no, monogamy was a, a kind of sex, sex redistribution. Arranged marriages in India are a kind of sex redistribution and their primary purpose was to maintain a kind of equilibrium. Um, yeah, and, and I think that that's really important is that monogamy is, um, for the benefit of low status men, um, that in a society where monogamy isn't a norm, then you will often have uh, a few high status men getting all the pussy and uh, no. a lot Andrew of Andrew Tate has enough men. as it is, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and so monogamy helps smooth that out for sure. And I think that that's a useful technology, but we're just in a place where it just doesn't work mathematically. Um, yeah, there's one woman for every man, but if every woman is expecting a man who's slightly better educated and higher income than she is, and there aren't enough higher income, higher educated men to go around, it's a math problem at the end of the day. And so either the men have to get degreed and paid or the women have to lower their standards or something else has to happen. And so, um, yeah, but I don't know. Not, not so much lower their standards, but, uh, and this goes, applies to men and women, it's not about lowering of standards, it's about localizing your standards, right? Because, you know, a lot of the Jonathan Hate stuff on uh, Instagram and social media usage, driving, you know, um, anorexia and eating disorders and, and stuff like that. Like there is a, that, that's not because women have risen their standards too much in terms of like sex appeal and body image and stuff like that. So much, so much as like globalized their standards where they're, where they're comparing themselves to the 99th percentile in the world rather than um, in their, in their local community. Um, and the same thing happens with men where like you feel, you know, I, I think, and I think mass media and communications technology is partly to blame here. Like, you felt like a hundred thousand dollar your your job was really really good until your buddy who moved away from home and like went to berkeley or something he's like making half a million at mckinsey or something you know your your group your your universe of comparison cases has gotten so big that everyone is dissatisfied because there's always someone better I mean, that's an interesting point, and I think it matters. I'm, I'm not sure it matters to this discussion because it's like super universal that uh, you know women aren't looking for a guy with a PhD, and I mean they are, of course, looking for a hundred thousand dollar job. But what ends up happening is men and women both choose partners who are where the man is just slightly above. Um, and so, and I agree that, you know, my phrasing was poor. I, you know, I don't think that it's a lowering of standards necessarily to say, I don't need my husband to have a degree or I don't need him to make uh, more money than me, but it is a changing of standards that if every woman does expect uh, this, it is a math problem. And so the standards are gonna have to 
again, the men are going to have to uh, step up in these areas, or they're going to have to step up possibly in other areas, and women are going to have to adjust their expectations uh, accordingly in, if we're going to get everybody married off. Um, but uh, I'm on the cheap Zoom, and I'm almost out of time, <laughs> so <laughs> I wanted to give you a chance for any last thoughts and to let people know where they can uh, learn more about you and, and read more of your stuff. Ham and cheese on Twitter. That's that's about it. Uh, it's good to see you, Kathy. You too, Sam. Cool. Thanks for coming on, and I will talk to you soon. Peace.